clear. We are the weirdos. I am God. What? I tried to warn her. Hello, everybody, and welcome to the night stream, the very special night stream edition of the Ops Tyrion podcast. It is me, your host, Jordan Cruciola, co-host Jordan Cruciola, along with uh, fellow co-host Sam Weinman. Yes, and we are, uh, as you might be able to tell, reporting to you live from Woodsboro, California, for this very special occasion. Where? Tell the folks at home where you are specifically, Sam. I'm well. First off, I'm definitely really in Woodsboro. <laughs> yes. Well, it. I'm obviously like Gail Weathers reporting live, standing in front of Sydney Prescott's home. So well, very clearly. And it's uh, daytime there, nighttime here, because the yeah. time zone is just huge. Woodsboro is very expansive. Fun I'm fact in, about Woodsboro, it spans the nation. Uh, the nation, right. <laughs> uh, different, both coasts. <laughs> it's crazy. <laughs> I, I am in a barn uh, yes. with a bunch of teens who are uh, getting ready for the Stabathon. I mean, what a night. We did a Stabathon of our own over the summer. Uh, the wonderful new Beverly Theater owned by Quentin Tarantino here in Los Angeles did a Scream Fest, all four movies, back to back to back to back. And that is, all of this information is germane to this conversation because we are here to dive into the significance of Scream 4. There's a killer out there patterning his murders after the original movie. It's time for someone new to die. It is a very, very important entry in not just the Scream series, but mm -hmm. I would say all of Ott's horror, because to me, this is just a nice little bow at the end of the decade. Yeah. And if you're um, if you're joining us here because you saw that Ott's Tyrion was on the lineup and you were like, hey, I listened to those guys and I like those guys. So I will check out this event then you know what you're in for. But if you are joining us because you are a night streamer and this is a new experience to you, the point of the Ots Tyrion podcast is to give the criterion level unpacking and treatment to movies around the millennium era horror category. So a little bit before the year 2000, really starting uh, in 1996 with Kevin Williamson and Wes Craven's original Scream and also The Craft, and then moving through post 2010s a little bit and sort of the fumes of the official 0 to 10 odds decade um, with movies that sort of bring up, bring up the caboose in there, like uh, The Roommate, All Cheerleaders Die, or Scream 4. Or your favorite Texas Chainsaw 3D. And when you say, it needs to be clear, listeners, that when he says my favorite Texas Chainsaw, that's not like a everybody's favorite, your faves. No. My literal favorite of the entire Texas Chainsaw franchise, Texas Chainsaw 3D starring Alexander Daddario. So just know that that's the level of discernment that we bring to this podcast. Do your thing, cuz. And I know what you're thinking, uh, straight person who wandered into this <laughs> podcast. You're like, oh, no, all they talk about are the movies I hate. Mm. Yes. <laughs> yeah. uh, I, I don't. Yes. Here's, here's the thing. You were wrong about them. And that's why you're here. You're yeah. here because we're going to help you understand why you were wrong and what mm -hmm. an incredible time you missed out on. And Scream 4 is actually the perfect film to do that with. Because Scream is trying to kind of like Scream 4 is, you know, known for satirizing the genre, but Scream 4 specifically is satirizing Ott's horror. It is, it is at once satirizing Ott's horror while putting a bookend on the Ott's era of horror because it is post-2010s 
sort of wrapping up formally the teen screen genre as we have known it, as it was reinvented by Kevin Williamson and Wes Craven in 1996 with Scream. It is like, I feel like a common criticism of this movie when it came out was that it was sort of doing too much. But at the same time, the era that we are sort of taking stock of with the movie's existence and the themes that it unpacks is too much. Like the idea, well, it's a bit much. You can hardly accept it's a bit much as a critique these days because the world's a fucking a bit much. All of it is extra, right? All of it, um, all of it. Deputy ex- Judy is extra and I love her. I think even if you think about like aughts era fashion, right? Mm-hmm. What was the fashion? It was a layer on a layer on a layer. <laughs> on it a was layer on a layer. 19 accessories and only some of them have function. And yeah. when you- when and you never were, the belt. Never a belt. <laughs> never belts, the belt. Those belts weren't holding anything up. I don't know what was holding them up. I don't know what was holding the belts up because we didn't have hips in the 2000s because that was not de rigueur. All of our gloves had holes in them. (laughs) They weren't keeping anybody warm. The thing about the, the aughts was all about like excess. Mm -hmm. And, and so when you think about just even the presentation of the aughts. Yep. uh, And then you look at something like Scream 4 and it's very intro. Mm -hmm. What we get right off the bat is excess. We have absolutely an opening scene that is an opening scene in an opening scene in an opening scene. The triple cold open is one of my favorite moments, truly in all of horror history. And and having just watched all these back to back to back to back recently, I think they serve their purpose better than ever watching them now. That was so fucking stupid, pure horseshit, the death of horror right here in front of us. I think that when people saw that in the moment, mm-hmm. I think there was a, either you loved it or you hated that cold open. Yes. And right now, as we talk about it, you're thinking, I hated that cold open. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it turns I, out. I am going to encourage you to go watch it again. So when we did our Stabathon with mm-hmm. one through four, by the time we got to it, I have to say it felt brilliant in mm-hmm. order. Now, a lot of people falter at Scream 3. We've talked about that. If you like this, go listen to our Scream 3 episode because it's fucking awesome. And Mm -hmm. we talk about um, looking at Scream 3 in a post-Me Too kind of world. Yeah. Um, But when we get Scream 3 as a third entry in a franchise is strong in that way. Mm-hmm. Um, it's not strong as a trilo- a closing to that trilogy. Which I think was strong. just your, you, like truly your sheen of brilliance in that episode is framing Scream 3 as a great bridge in a four-part franchise, even if it was the weak end of a trilogy. And in a way, I think that Scream 3 kind of like, I don't know, it, it, in volleyball, what do they do? Like you lift the ball? You spike, set it? You set, set it. it? Yeah. In, in a lot of ways, <laughs> Scream 3 sets sets the ball for scream four to, to spike, just, like, it. spike it to then spike it yes absolutely completed that metaphor thank you sports <laughs> uh, i don't know if you can tell uh my my grinder profile says jock yeah oh yeah you're you're, am, abs- uh, you're an la jock you're just am, an la I jock am, uh, sports 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 can't talk about anything else throwing balls and spiking them all too. of it spiking them uh yeah. it, the other thing that makes Scream 4 particularly impactful mm-hmm. and, and so important to this very conversation is its place in queer horror history. Absolutely. There is a line in Scream 4 where one of the characters says it's it's Robbie. So the reversals become the new standard. In fact, the only surefire way to survive a modern horror movie, you pretty much have to be gay. 
right. When he's running down the rules of like, cause we obviously got the rules given to us by Randy and the flashback tape and mm-hmm. number three, where he's like, all bets are off. It could be fucking reservoir dogs by the time this thing is over. And number three, well, now we are in four. We have gone even further in the evolution or de-evolution of the slasher. And so there are even more rules in play that the Woodsboro high horror club uh, is breaking down for our 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 main scream heroes Gail and Sydney. They're visiting the class for a talk, and you know he explains like basically at this point it, it's it's the rules are so broken at this point you you practically have to be gay to survive a horror movie. That's how off the off the chain everything is now. Which it's interesting because they say like basically because all bets are off in a very yeah. similar way to part three where they're like it's the closing of a trilogy all bets are off you're gonna yeah. get more information about the past um i think that maybe somewhere i spec somebody on the team was like hey remember in scream 2 mm-hmm. how we sh- you know the black person always dies first how about gay people that's yeah. pretty fresh because we're talking about gay people right now in 2011 mm-hmm. and this is a conversation that's actually coming up so let's discuss you know and that's where this rule comes from and yet it's also entirely false It's entirely false. And I think it's really an important thing to note about horror in 2011. I have my little notes off to the side of me. This is a year when Insidious has come out in 2010 and James Wan and Lee Wanell are basically going to reinvent the landscape of modern horror once more, which they previously had done and saw. And then in 2011, it's really the year of celebrating the triumphant indie horror bros. You have Ty West putting out The Innkeepers lauded film. You have Adam Wingard putting out Your Next. Um, Just the year after this, you're going to have VHS, which is going to bring with it sort of a a preview of of sort of horror, bigger heavy hitters to come. You have David Bruckner in that. You have the Radio Silence filmmaking team who is bringing you Scream 5. Like there is a lot happening in the early 2010s that's going to kind of, I think, seed the indie horror landscape that's going to burgeon more fully throughout the 2010s and fortunately get more queer throughout the 2010s, particularly as we arrive in the early 20s. But what queer horror meant at the time, 2009, we had Jennifer's Body. That was a flop. 2000 and what year was it? Uh, we had Hostel Part 2. Is it this year? Is it uh, 20- 2007. 2007, we had Hostel Part 2. That didn't do, whereas one was um, a pretty solid financial success and obviously led to a a coming franchise, not as many people turned out to see number two, and that's the gay one in an utterly homophobic franchise. So, like, 2004, we have Cedar Chucky, Mm -hmm. flop, flop. So, like, whether earnestly done or regrettably done in hindsight, queer horror in the theater is not really jumping off. You have the success of the show True Blood, which is Mm -hmm. doing queer horror on HBO, but it is also a genre show on premium cable on blue chip TV, HBO. And then a vitally important thing comes around in 2011 that Scream 4 predates. Mm -hmm. That is American Horror Story. American Horror Story, a game changer. It is, there is, there's sort of, it's really in terms of 21st century, like let's just say 21st century horror. I, I like, we, we don't have to get into the whole history of it, but in terms of 21st century horror, there's before for, for whatever it's, it's issues or it's critiques or, or, you know, your one's commentary on the Ryan Murphy verse, there's before American horror story. 
and theirs after in terms of the mainstreaming of queer, gory, unapologetic, gruesome, offensive, mainstream horror in the way that is introduced to us in Murder House. That comes out later 2011, early 2011 in the spring in April when, when four comes out. We're not having the Ryan Murphy conversation yet. No. We have not taken queer vernacular to that place yet. This is a fascinating in-between time before sort of the future of queer modern horror and, and, its, and its antecedents. Something interesting about that specific, well, okay, let's say Ryan Murphy, we know it's got problems. With it comes mm-hmm. a lot of different kinds of representation that land and a lot that don't. Exactly. But, but it captures the imagination of everybody. I mean, it's yes. what we're talking about. And so yep. when we talk about cultural impact- It is event that, television supported by ads. There are advertisements that play in the middle the of an episode where there is the rubber man, where we are getting the beginnings of Sarah Paulson, perhaps now the most like prominent, important lesbian actress in all of Hollywood. Like, And this is ad-supported television, not hidden behind mm-hmm. the HBO yes. garden wall. And listen, that's great content. Just like when I think about something in horror like Hellbent, which is Mm -hmm. uh, earlier in the 2000s, and that is an all-queer cast. It's got a gay Mm -hmm. director. It was touted as like the first gay slasher. It's better than everybody remembers. Uh, And and it tanked, but it's still very important. Yeah. But it's not necessarily important to this conversation because what we're talking about is not the queer horror timeline just as it exists. We're talking Mm -hmm. about um, as the public understands it. Yeah. Now, What's happening in 2011, it's on the heels of 2010 and Glee and the introduction of Blaine as a character. And I bring Mm -hmm. this up because it was a national phenomenon. Huge Um, phenomenon. Absolutely. The the first kiss between Kurt and Blaine, the gay characters on the show, was Mm -hmm. uh, exactly one month before the release of it because it was March 15th. Scream 4 comes out April 15th. Now, well, we also get we get Kurt's dad as the ally parent in this show accessible on basic cable channels. And also, and now this is not me saying again, that any of these things are not are w- without problem. Mm-hmm. But in 2011, we get uh, the album that has same love. Now, same love, the mm-hmm. song by Macklemore about same sex marriage mm-hmm. and uh, and assimilation that straight people loved. Mm-hmm. Uh, it, it was a big deal because it meant that we were talking and singing about in a mainstream way, uh, queer love, right? Mm-hmm. And that was 2012 goes on to be nominated for a Grammy in 2014, but it actually is released in 2011. And so all of this is to say this moment in Scream 4 is arriving at a pop cultural, uh, at a moment of pop cultural awareness or cultural Mm -hmm. awareness that queer people are out there. If I was gay, I would think hip hop hates me. Have you read the YouTube comments lately? Man, that's gay. Gets dropped on the daily. We become so numb to what we're saying. A culture founded from oppression. Yeah, we don't have now. We're not really speaking for ourselves in mm-hmm. general. Um, we are just at the cusp of Ryan Murphy taking us there with American Horror Story. Mm-hmm. Um, and we have things like True Blood in the past um, that are, you know, they're big, but they're not necessarily the same kind of cultural impact. Um, it's a little bit messy in mm-hmm. 2011. It's uh, messy. It is a it is a messy time where because it matters too that like we're giving you guys a, a big cultural dump on this but it matters too like how much we're talking about scream for being right on the precipice of and it's like this is an inherently queer movie like nico tortorello queer actor 
Yeah. The character of Kirby, I'm sorry, that's a queer character. Like queer icon Kirby. Like obviously written by Kevin Williamson, queer legend yeah. in the horror legend straight up and queer legend in the horror landscape. There is so much that is queer in the DNA of this film. And we are right on the threshold of that being able to be a headline about something that you can sell as a promotional aspect. Obama is about to endorse gay marriage for the first time in 2012 as right. he is pursuing re-election, but we're but not, there not yet. yet. That is why this is yet. so important. And it's, it is important to talk about the, what is happening culturally in the conversation about queer people. Yep. If we can, I know we're not, we'll go through it very quickly, but if we're talking about what queer horror is, mm -hmm. right? We have, it, we have the old monster films by James Whale, we have mm -hmm. by Frankenstein, we have The Invisible Man, James Whale, who's an openly gay director in mm -hmm. Hollywood in the 30s, which is fucking wild. Yeah. Um, but we have that. But then everything after the Hayes Code, horror goes into the closet, right? Mm -hmm. In the 1980s, we do get some queer kind of like queer characters popping up here and there or, you know, queer coded vampires. It's like, obviously his dangly earring means he's gay, right? right. And then even in the 90s, right, we have- Well, we have the brief Nirvana in the 70s of the John Waters era, right. sort of post-Rocky yes. horror, sort of glitter blitz that is Thank then you. rained upon by the tragedy of the AIDS crisis that consumes an entire decade plus. Well, so when we're looking at moments where we ebb and flow in terms of representation, mm -hmm. we see queer people existing in a, in a public way in the 1930s, right? Mm -hmm. Or the late, the 1920s and uh, in, in that entire era where it suddenly is socially acceptable and the Great Depression kind of pushes back. Yeah. And we have it again. Mm -hmm. uh, we have it in the 1970s, post Stonewall. We see it in films, we see characters, and then AIDS happens and that pushes it back. Yep. Uh, and then we are once again arriving at a moment in history mm -hmm. where we are a part of the conversation again. Mm -hmm. And so this is kind of an important, it, when we look at the waves of it, that, mm -hmm. that's why I bring it up because it's like, this is one year before the Chick-fil-A protest. This mm -hmm. is on, this is also, this is 2011 is the same year that the no hate campaign went mm -hmm. global. You yep. know, activism on social media where you put tape over your mouth and write no hate in reference to Prop 8, which yep. was about same-sex marriage. These things happened because there was conflict. Mm -hmm. And and it bubbles up in Scream 4 uh, in a very, I think, uh, heterosexual misunderstanding kind of way. Well, and I think, too, I, I think the idea of, I you know... There are two things, there's another thing that's happening, like the idea of this movie being right before, I feel like so many things that would have primed it for greater success than yes. it had. Yes. Like this is 2011, we're talking, you know, about like the sort of the, the very talented filmmakers, but like, you know, this crop of men making independent, you know, white straight men making independent films that are jumping off and they're going to go on to, you know, in the case of Adam Wingard, make something like Godzilla versus fucking Kong, like yeah. do very, very big careers. And David Bruckner currently making Hellraiser, great success this year with The Night House. Like what you have right after Scream, like in 2012, that's when you get excision. That is when you get American Mary, I'm pretty sure. That's when you get Paranorman. Ah, oh, Paranorman. Surprise. That's when you get Paranorman. That character's gay. You yeah, know? The, like... the gay jock character of Paranorman. You know, you're going to love my boyfriend. He's like a total chick flick nut. So why, why Scream 4 especially uh, interests me as far as this specific thing goes is it does a little bit of, it's attempting to do a little bit of creating history, right? Mm -hmm. By being so cool that uh, that it's like, okay, you practically have to be gay to survive a horror movie, anticipating mm -hmm. that that queer identity is kind of trendy, right? 
Right. We're yes. These big ways. There it is on Glee. It's coming right around the corner on, uh, you know, uh, on MTV. It, there, there are so many ways that it's kind of bubbling up. Yeah. So they're like, okay, let's make a topical statement like this. Now, why is it wrong? And why is it important that yeah. it's wrong? Uh, queer characters don't survive their movies. Mm-hmm. End of story. So there's a trope called the barrier gaze trope mm-hmm. where, uh, and, and it's about how queer characters, not just in horror, but in any genre, uh, tend to have a tragic, there's a, there's a death, one or both of them die, their love is doomed something bad happens then think like Buffy the Vampire Slayer and Tara and Willow. Mm-hmm. Uh, Tara dies, sending Willow into an evil kind of thing. And now she's the big bad of that season. Mm-hmm. We get time and again, when queer characters exist, we are not allowed to be, we're doomed. Yeah. <laughs> and so when queer characters and horror happen, oh, you can bet they're going to die. Mm-hmm. Um, we don't have very many examples at this point, but when we do, they don't get to live or they have to become the monster or mm-hmm. they something happens where it's revealed that they actually were the monster the whole time, whether mm-hmm. that's high tension or sleepaway camp. We just have this cruising. We have this history of queer killers mm-hmm. uh, in addition to queer characters who, when they do pop up, are just side characters because we can't have mainstream queer characters yet. And there aren't in this movie. Like for all of its, you know, for the, for the tongue in cheek invocation of um, you practically have to be gay to survive a horror movie. There, in fact, a, there is not a gay character in this movie to, to even prove out that exception, um, which, you know, is worth noting. And, and I, you know, I think that's a, that I think it's very interesting to look at that within the lens of Kevin Williamson's career and how much he had to push to get the representation that he did at, at various turns, whether that was in his television show, The Following, or whether that was in the Scream franchise, or that was in a, another movie that he wrote, like The Faculty, like, he wasn't allowed to, as a gay man, have his characters see through fully realized gay storylines. Look at Billy and Stu and Scream and how that wasn't really a romantic couple, but definitely was a romantic couple if you're paying any attention. Right. So like, these are the kind of structures that a, even somebody who reinvented the genre working with one of the great filmmakers in the discipline of all time, one of the great filmmakers of all time in Wes Craven, if you are Kevin Williamson working with Wes Craven and you can't even get for front-facing overtly queer characters and storylines in your films up through 2011, fucking who could? Who could possibly, if not those men? And so I think it's truly a testament to the limits that creatives were working under, no matter how out and proud they may have been in their lives. Like you said, with Seed of Chucky, Don Mancini's at that point, gayest entry into the Chucky franchise, yet the gayest of all the super killer franchises, that movie was a bomb. And like the hands of people were tied at a studio level. And I think that like looking at Scream 4 now as a testament to truly how much and how quickly things changed at the end of the 2010s in terms of viability of queer presence on screen and queer storylines is shocking. It is a whiplash kind of turn. When you consider that things only really started to change heavily in the middle of the 2010s, and now we're at 2021, and it feels like an entirely different world, where Lil Nas X can have a, you know, a horror-centric music video where he's twerking on Satan and then breaking his neck to take the crown in hell. Like, we couldn't have, we couldn't have a a true gay storyline in Scream 4, and yet now that is a part of the conversation that we can have? I mean, it is unbelievable, but at the time, it just couldn't be embraced. So, so what we have is what we've had a lot of in the past, which is like a queer sensibility. You mentioned Kirby. You've mm-hmm. got her. I I love, like, I, I know every queer person I know. Kirby is our girl. 
Do you feel that? That charge that moved between us just then? Oh, that was me. My powers. So sexy. Right? You watch 100%. this movie? 100%. 100%. She's the one. And she follows a lot of the kind of classic, tr the traditional queer coding we see, which is like a short haircut. Mm -hmm. Yes, she's got a, a guy, but she also doesn't really care. <laughs> like She, she is, also doesn't really care. There, uh, And then there's, of course, the character using, like utilizing it when he goes to die. Uh, Robbie says, I'm gay. I'm gay. If it helps. <laughs> now, do we know he is? Um, probably mm -hmm. not. You know what I mean? But, <laughs> but let's say even Probably let's say he, let's say he was uh, mm -hmm. gay for two seconds, but it is presented in the movie like, OK, uh, this is a shield where mm -hmm. with a character like Kirby, mm -hmm. that's who we really see ourselves in. Oh, absolutely. I think that when we get this this opening and I, I know that we're now like we have skipped so far ahead, you know, uh, in terms of setting the stage for what happens later. But mm -hmm. to me, the opening with these three girls in a car. Mm -hmm. That's queer horror. <laughs> <laughs> Just teen girls talking shit. That's yeah, I would Listen, I would absolutely include that in the umbrella of, of queer horror. Teen girls talking shit, queer horror. Emma Roberts, queer, queer horror. horror. Now, we didn't know it yet. Yeah, we didn't know this it is, yet. This but is we the were beginning about to find of out. We the reign of Emma Roberts. Out. Yeah. <laughs> okay, so like we've got this intro. That Another is one of the things Ryan Murphy definitely did right. Yeah, thank you, Ryan Murphy, for Emma yeah, Roberts. Yeah, for, for Emma, Mur Emma Roberts' queer horror icon. It's like Ryan Murphy saw Scream 4 and was like, you know what? <laughs> yeah. I've got a witch season I'm brainstorming, and I think I know just the girl. And what we also have it, that is queer about Scream 4 is what's queer about all of them, which is it is a group of survivors. This, this, the, uh, these people brought together, these friends who are family to one another, brought mm -hmm. together by circumstance. Um, and they really, really care about each other. That is something that is a, a theme that comes up in queer horror again and again. I yeah. know it's it, as people who have chosen family, like that is an important theme. In mm -hmm. Scream 4, when we, when we get to see Sydney returning home, that's what we're waiting for. We're waiting for her and Gail and Dewey. We want them to be together. Oh, absolutely. And and what a great thing about the fact that we want them to be together is that Gail is fucking tired of this suburban life. Oh, and she's like, God. I've made the wrong choice. I have given up my career to come live with this man in a tiny town that I pretty much hate. Why and that is why Gail Weathers is relentlessly, relentlessly and forever a queer icon because she is willing to shuck the bounds of a heteronormativity. Yes. She regrets her decision to opt into it. And she's ready to walk into a life of urban cosmopolitan fabulosity where she is a woman who's back on leading the charge on, what is it, 60 minutes to? Gail Weathers was like, you know, when we see movies, normally it's like uh, somebody chooses heteronormativity and then they're like, mm, is this going to work? I don't really like it. So <laughs> they have a baby and then everything's fine. Yeah. That Gail was like, thing. I'm not going to have a baby. No. I'm going to solve a murder. She wants to be a part of the investigation, Sheriff. Okay. Hang on. Um, are you familiar with the phrase, I wrote the book on this? <laughs> so, I'm not me unless I'm solving crimes. Shit starts to go down in Woodsboro and Gail Weathers is on the fucking case. Now, Dewey is a sheriff. Yeah. And He's honestly, the, would rather would pick Gail to solve my case 10 times out of 10 over over Dewey Riley. A hundred percent. Gail is Gail is just here. There's one. OK, listen, you and I disagree on this. Me and you disagree on this. There is one moment that I liken in theory, but don't 
like the execution of it's when Gail reads Sydney's assistant to Phil mm -hmm. and then turns around and she's like, I still got it. I, uh, I think for me, for me, that moment works entirely because she has been in this town for 10 years and Gail doesn't need to tell the audience that Gail needs to tell herself that. You know what? Like okay. Gail, Gail, like we already know that we can see that that's a, that's right. a telling and that's a telling and showing moment. But at the same time, like Gail is feeling herself in a way and feeling alive in a way that I'm going to assume she hasn't for the past decade since she set foot in Woodsboro. And in that moment, it's important for Gail to fist pump herself and tell her that she has still fucking got it. I, I'm with that moment for that reason. Well, and by the way, assistant who's played by Allison Brie, this cast, the people Wes Craven, Wes Craven is a master of casting. <laughs> yeah, and people Always. will show up for him yes. because he was Wes Craven. In addition to Emma and Hayden, we've got Allison Brie playing this like horrible publicist. Publicist, that's right. Who could have uh, who could have easily been the killer in this movie? <laughs> yes, absolutely. <laughs> Love it. I mean, our cold open features Shanae Grimes, Lucy Hale, Kristen Bell, Amy Teagarden, Anna Paquin. The first five minutes of the movie have those five people and kills almost all of them for yeah. fun. Yeah. And by the way, Lucy Hale playing high school, which she's about to do for the next 14 years. <laughs> yeah. I, I imagine she still has a few high school years left in her. So that's why I say 14. <laughs> Yeah, you put her in the right outfit. She's absolutely, she's God, got or to. Just put her in the same outfit. That's what Blumhouse keeps doing. <laughs> My God. <laughs> Give her the same jacket. Listen, I'm going to let you guys in on a secret. Look at the red shirt in Truth or Dare and <laughs> that Island movie, Fantasy Island. Fantasy Island. Lucy Hale's wearing the same shirt. That means, that that means they are the same person. This is the same <laughs> I'm telling you. So, okay. Why back, back to screen four? with Alison Brie and that character, mm -hmm. I, I think it's supposed to give Nev Campbell's character or Sydney Prescott, our yes. hero from all yes. the films, it's really supposed to give her like the material, somebody to push up against. Nice shirt. Yeah, thank you. Uh, you know, she's kind of like fodder for that. Like, okay, yeah. Sydney is going to kind of like push up against this snooty character so that we can see how strong she is. Yeah. I don't necessarily think that the movie does that well enough. Mm. I want to see more Sydney, but we have to divide up all of the parts because we got a lot of people in Woodsboro. Yeah, our ensemble up. has ballooned in this movie because we have introduced Marley Shelton as Deputy Judy. We have the new core of high school friends. We have our cold open people. We have our original cast. There are yep. a lot of story needs that need to be met in this movie. And honestly, I, I again, like the, the criticism of the movie trying to do too much, I think for the amount of people that it had, the amount of personnel management that is going on in Scream 4, I think ends ends up being a shockingly elegant juggling of those responsibilities, just considering how many there are. There's Adam Brody and Anthony fucking Anderson just playing throwaway roles as cops. Um, okay, that's also Mary McDonald. Mary McDonald! Like, guys, we go home with Sydney. So Sydney, like, you know, she's there in Woodsboro to sign books, but then there's a murder and then they find a cell phone in their car and blood. Yeah. So it's like, gotta be a crime scene. Gail, by yeah. the way, who doesn't give a fuck? She's gonna go take pictures of it or whatever. You know, he's <laughs> yeah. like, uh, move, I gotta see this. Um, and so, so Sydney's going to stay with her family, her yeah, family, which includes stay with her aunt and her, her niece, her aunt and her niece, mm -hmm. uh, her aunt played by, uh, Mary McDonald and her niece, Emma Roberts. But, uh, Mary McDonald is the mom from independence day. You know, the one who has, uh, who has internal bleeding and she's just the first lady, over. indeed the first lady liar. 
you know that moment <laughs> yeah. you know and so when and she also the up, president in Battlestar Galactica at, rightfully so say so. we all god she just knows she knows how to be in charge you know, <laughs> she so, knows how to be in charge so when Sydney goes home and sees her I'm like oh my god who is gonna even who is this movie about yeah because now we have so <laughs> many stars I don't know who we're following yeah um but what I love about the moment when uh there's a moment when her character uh Kate mm -hmm. oh yes Kate, yeah she says nobody asked me about my scars mm -hmm. everybody's always so focused on Sydney Mm -hmm. And I think that it is uh, a moment where brilliant casting comes into play because any any other character, this would be a throwaway, but suddenly you know the world around Sydney that we don't normally get. Do you know what it was like growing up in this family related to you? I mean, all I ever heard was Sydney this and Sydney that and Sydney, Sydney, Sydney. You were always just so fucking special. Well, now I'm the special one. Mm -hmm. um you have because you know jill and aunt kate have talked about this yes. given how we know jill resolves given that we you know jill will unveil herself dramatically to be the narcissistically motivated killer who is absolutely tired of existing in the shadow of sydney the survivor sydney the hero sydney her sydney her own aunt right. like you you or her cousin jill's her cousin I, i'm sorry um you get this sense that when Sydney's not in Woodsboro and from the narrative that kind of pops up around her among the high schoolers, the angel of death in Woodsboro, she's not, she's not a hometown hero. She's, she's like, a, she's a hometown cautionary tale. And she's a bit of a, she's a bit of a pariah. Like people don't feel great about Sydney. It seems unless you're Dewey Riley. Yes. Now, and Gail, as much as Gail can. I think when we, this might be a good moment to talk about the real world kind of conversation about Scream 4 at the time because we get yeah. Kevin Williamson's name on this movie. Yeah. Now, the problem with Scream 3 is Kevin walked from that project and his name wasn't on it, right? Mm -hmm. And that uh, Aaron, Aaron, Aaron Kruger, Kruger yeah. uh, ended up taking over and then he got sole screenwriting credit. Now, with Scream 4, it was really buzzy because it was like, okay, Kevin's back. Kevin and, Kevin and, and Wes, mm -hmm. they're back. That's our team. It's going to be like one and two. Mm -hmm. um, and then something happened along the way and we don't know what, right? But what we do know is Kevin left mm -hmm. and Aaron got back on. And what we have now is a script that is kind of like a medley of both Kevin Williamson right. and this man who took over Scream 3. Yeah. And so it's interesting because I think Scream 4 actually reads that way. Like there are a lot of moments mm -hmm. in Scream 4 that do feel like they have a queer sensibility. Mm -hmm. I, I have no evidence to say who wrote what. Right. But, <laughs> I, but I can say a character like Hayden, right? Mm -hmm. A character like Kirby mm -hmm. feels like she came from Kevin Williamson. And a line like you practically have to be gay to survive a horror movie feels like it may have come <laughs> from a straight person. I'm just going <laughs> to go out on a limb sure. and say this movie is in a lot of ways at odds with itself tonally. Mm -hmm. And, uh, and while that may be a challenge for a lot of people who are coming to this film, expecting and maybe hoping for one, two, mm -hmm. one and two back to back, um, for somebody like me who just loves a mess, mm -hmm. <laughs> when, when I see these tonal differences, I'm like, all right, let's go. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Get the gas. Give get the me, gas. Get Gail sneaking into a party full of teens in a yeah. in a ghost face mask, doing a weird dance, doing oh, a weird mom dance. Yeah, I'm just <laughs> like you. I'm one of the kids. Like <laughs> I want, I want that. I want Dewey as a as a sheriff who can't sheriff. 
Yeah, I, yeah. I want <laughs> Deputy Judy making multiple jokes about her lemon squares. Sheriff, you're not cheating on your wife if you eat my lemon square. Also, Deputy Judy, that one moment where she's creeping in the shadows and she comes out like like Pennywise with one of her eyes in a different direction. In a fucking house. In someone's fucking house. In someone's house. You don't remember me, do you? Sorry? We went to high school together. Judy Hicks. We had the same homeroom and drama club, too. In someone's house. To say we knew each other in high school. It's like, I oh my God. Love it. That is a Wes Craven touch. That's Wes going, you know, we, we got we could do something with this. And honestly, I, if you yeah. did watch Soul Survivors from 2010, my soul to take from 2010, it kind of feels the entire movie feels like Deputy Judy. So this is the mode that this guy's in around 2010. And when you look at Scream 4, just the way that it is in appearance, it also feels very 2010s. Like, look at the light behind me, right? This, <laughs> yeah. this color, this color is the odds. Chartreuse is the odds. Think about uh, Texas Chainsaw. Think about, it, it's either going to be that or it's going to be like that cold blue from Saw. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, yeah. It's, right? either, or, it's either cobalt or it's chartreuse. Yeah. Oh, God. I know it killed me. <sighs> yeah. So, you know. Well, that like that's the entire color palette that you and, have next to you of the hills have eyes, and it does, and, and of the Hitcher. It does feel like uh, that that Wes Craven is doing this knowingly. Like it feels like he knows that this is the palette, and he's making the change. Like I think because when you think about there's a scream, a, a scream. I meant scene. <laughs> uh, so there's a scene where uh, Kirby is asked. Okay, I'm skipping ahead. Maybe I should wait. Well, I, I think uh, I think a thing to you know you're you're talking about the a tonal cacophony that 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 comes up in this movie. And for me, my criteria for a screen movie is: Are my friends from Woodsboro there, and are they having fun? Yeah, great. I love this movie. That's me. As long as I get Gail and Dewey and Sydney, and they're doing Gail Dewey Sydney hijinks, then I'm sold. I'm in. And yeah. they're so lived in and a, a a delight of four to me is they're so lived in in these characters at this point. It almost feels like you wouldn't even need to hand them a script. It would just be like, say what Sydney would say here. And yeah. Nev would know exactly what to do. Gail is, you know, Courtney, do something Gail. And she would add just the right flourish. And it's, it's, I'm not saying there's no script. I'm not saying there's no direction, but they're so authentically these characters at this point that it just, they're just wearing, they just are, they share the same skin. And so, but I think a, a environmental challenge, a contextual challenge that Scream 4 has at the time is that this is also the year that Cabin in the Woods comes out. Yes. And Cabin in the Woods gets the flowers that similarly, not to the same epic degree, but similarly to what Scream got in 1996. Yeah. This like that, oh, hey, good did point. you guys see this movie? Oh my God, and Jordan. It, it spawned a generation of, of horror watching person, horror light watching person who if you ask them oh do you watch scary movies like are you are you into horror stuff at all they say well i love cabin in the woods like it 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 spawned that entire ripple effect of well but have you seen cabin in the woods well cabin in the woods is often is awesome well i like smart horror you know like like cabin in the yes. woods I like, as though it was it's only, elevated yeah it's elevated as though it was the only horror movie that had ever been clever and i really like cabin in the woods but here's the thing about it 
Cabin in the Woods did a great job of succinctly sort of capturing the spirit of horror and executing it in a moment that was absolutely perfectly timed for its arrival. Like we needed a shot in the arm like that. We needed something fresh. And we, it was amazing to have something at that budget level that could execute the conceit all the way to the very end in the biggest way possible. That wasn't just like some single location cheap horror film, but it got to actually be as big and grandiose as its ambitions would ask for it to be. And that is wonderful. But at the same time, if you look at it now for what a movie that portended something, a movie that left the door open for a a larger conversation in the years to come, Scream 4 is absolutely the more fertile ground to me than Cabin in the Woods. Well, sick is the new saying. You had your 15 minutes. Now I want mine. I mean, what am I supposed to do? Go to college, grad school, work? Look around. We all live in public now. We're all on the internet. How do you think people become famous anymore? I I think having a conversation now about Scream 4 and what that movie actually nailed on target in the way that for things it was exactly derided for at the time is fascinating. There have been real... There have been reappraisals of Scream 4 in the past couple of years because we are at its 10th anniversary time now. Jermaine Lussier wrote a very, um, you know, glad you made it to the party, Jermaine. I have been wrong about Scream 4 for all of these 10 years. And he mentions that some of the things he was most wrong about in his original review for Slash Film were that like a killer that's motivated to kill because they want like social media fame, (laughs) that's been, well... (laughs) The idea of living so online, the idea of like conversations that may have seemed cutesy or like too clever by a half at the time that were like, listen, how many times are we going to talk about live streaming and social media? Welcome to fucking 2021. Like the idea too, like I think he even says in his original review, not to put him totally on blast, almost all critics were wrong about Scream 4, but he does say in it too that like it strained credulity that all of these kids would go to a stabathon while there was a psycho murderer on a killing spree through town. It's like, hi, have you met the COVID response in the United States? Right. Like, no. In fact, people will take to the streets and be absolutely crazy fucking irresponsible when there is a mass death event unfolding around them. So it kind of turns out this movie not only had its fingers on the pulse, it actually was quite aware of the divergent path, the dark divergent path that we were going to take behind, take along some of the themes that it was exploring at the time. So I taught a class in Berkeley uh, in, uh, <laughs> at the time of the release of this movie. And mm. as a, and so this is really interesting that you bring this up because Cabin in the Woods was a bonus. Like if, yeah. if you did that, there was a lot of, that was an extra credit option. So there's a lot mm. of conversation about Cabin in the Woods. Yeah. And we also had Scream 4 as a, as a, like a, an outing, right? Yeah. Like we all went oh, as good. a field trip, a field okay. trip, right? To the midnight show. Because then back then you actually saw it, by the way, at midnight, 10 years ago. Yes. You didn't see it at nine. Nine fucking Thursday. PM. No. no, 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 no. You had to wait till midnight. Till um, 11 fucking 59 PM. And, uh, but yeah, we went and did that. And thinking about it contextually, the conversations that we had about both of those films, Cabin in the Woods was like, oh, well, it's fresh and that kind of thing. When in retrospect, Cabin in the Woods is really just rehashing the idea of the final girl started by Carol J. Clover, but at a time when we weren't usually, we weren't really talking about final right. girls. Right, we had gone too far from the source material. And so it seemed like it was the primary source, whereas it was building exactly. on existed. It did what Scream did in 1996 by pointing to horror and saying, this is what horror is. Yeah. But it just did it in a different way. So it really was just the same thing, but different. 
Yeah, um, it, it, Leslie Vernon had also done what Cabin in the Word, the, the behind the mask, the rise of Leslie Vernon. So like, but well, yeah, no. And so the, but the conversation at the time was that mm -hmm. where around Scream 4, it was like, this doesn't feel now. Mm -hmm. This doesn't feel like it really understands what horror is now. And I think yeah. that's really interesting to think about in context, because we talk about a lot of the elements of Scream 4 much more than we talk about Cabin in the Woods now. Yes, and we do. I think part of it is again, a great, well-executed, thoroughly entertaining film. When you when you said, which I think is brilliant, Jordan, but talking about living online, like how much of our lives are online, you have to think about in 2011, we weren't. So yep. yes, we had phones, but not everybody had phones that had apps. Not everybody mm -hmm. did. That nope. was real, right? Um, there's a movie. So Final Destination 5 comes out in 2011 and there's a character with a flip phone. Mm -hmm. Now, of course, that's a part of the gag when you guys see the movie. But mm -hmm. it was still believable that he would have a flip phone in 2011. Totally. Yeah. So, and when you think about social media, MySpace had just barely toppled. Facebook was kind of in its prime. Instagram just started in 2010, October mm -hmm. of 2010. Instagram was not a thing. Instagram Live, not a thing. Twitter, barely around. Like social media was figuring out what it was going to be. Mm -hmm. um, status updates on Facebook were not like what they are now. They were like, something, something, something is feeling blank. <laughs> Do you know what I mean? It was like, I'm, and I'm not trying to be, I'm not trying to over-exaggerate here. But I mean, but really social media was a baby and the way that we used it, we were still figuring it out. But what Scream 4 so smartly predicted was our need and attachment for that. And I think it's because of an entire decade of reality television. Mm. Reality TV is something that really took off in the 2000s in a way that it hadn't before. I mean, because we had the real world in the 90s, right? But like, when you think about shows like Survivor and Big Brother, these things that kind of changed everything, and then there's the Real Housewives and that kind of angle of it. But reality was the focus of the aughts in terms of television programming and the fact that anybody could be a star. People attribute Paris Hilton as being like famous for being famous at mm -hmm. that time. That's kind of, now, you and I, friend, we know. <laughs> yeah. We know. we know there is so much more to that story. But of at the course. time, that's what people said because the yeah, idea never mind that Paris like, Hilton was an entire self-sustaining business empire. It's fine. It's like the American dream was mm -hmm. now like, you know, it's like before it's like, okay, if you work hard enough, you can have everything, which is by yeah. the way a lie. But in yeah. this case, it was like, hey, if you social media right, or if you if you like are on this show or whatever, if you just had a camera crew following you around, mm -hmm. you could be just as interesting and famous as anybody else. As and anybody else. That is where Jill comes from. Jill are yes. uh, uh, the cousin of Sydney Prescott, mm -hmm. her and her, she wants to be the center of her own kind of like reality show. Mm -hmm. The way that it's presented is of course pre the way that we're involved in social media now. So mm -hmm. in the moment, I think it might've felt a little stale. It's like, well, reality has yeah. been around for a while. Well, you know what I mean? Like, right, like yeah. it's like, this doesn't feel like a fresh idea when in fact it was exactly like Scream 4 is on the cusp of all of the queer representation that's about to have, yeah. it was on the cusp of the way that we represent ourselves as individuals and the way that we broadcast our everyday lives. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And I think too that what it does, the way that G you look at Jill now and she's an incredibly effective villain and Emma Roberts' performance is absolutely gorgeous for what it's doing. Yes. What this movie does too is it drags the Randy construction into mm. what Randy feels more sincerely like now than like the cute go along to get along hero that he was in 1996. Like Randy is the character that has aged the least well to me of, of that original movie. Oh my God, drag him. Yes. We, we all know Randy on the internet now. He's that 
fucking guy who replies to you on Twitter to tell you the semantic reasons why you were wrong about saying that you liked a movie. Like, you know, the person who you say watermelons are good and they respond to you, go fuck yourself. Watermelons are horrible. Like Randy is a, is the film Twitter version of that guy. Randy takes the time to rate your podcast with one star. He he goes and finds it. You know what I mean? Like who goes and finds Randy. Randy yeah. asks you, Randy asks you, like, if you're like, oh, you like horror and then asks you some like deep cut trauma movie that's actually a piece of shit that may or may not have any artistic value, but he's going to make it seem like, do you even horror, bro? Well, it's a stab fanatic, clearly. Working on less of a shriekle and, and more of a screamake. Copyright terms, by the way. Because all there are now are remakes. Like yes. that. Oh my God, Randy Jordan, Meeks. yes. That is Randy Meeks. We know that. We've met Randy Meeks now. And then in 2011, what we have with Kieran Culkin's character. Uh, Rory Culkin. Rory. Oh, sorry. Rory Culkin. Apologies, Culkin. No, it's okay. There's a lot of Culkins, but they're all great. And they're all great. That's all why of you them. Every last one them. of them. They are all so talented. Yeah. And so what you have. Rory Culkin giving us full Ren fair hair. Full Ren fair. He's ready that to ride a horse. So authentic. I he looks like exactly what you're describing, Jordan. Yes. As and Charlie. Charlie, right? Yeah. Charlie. And Charlie, what Charlie ends up being as the co-conspirator with Jill is the actual natural progression of the like murderous film Twitter incel shit poster boy that Randy actually would have been outside of the romanticized portrayal of nerd best friends in the 1990s. Kirby, this is making a move. <laughs> Four years of classes together, and you notice me now? <laughs> Stupid bitch! It's too late! <laughs> um, Charlie is so much more of an authentic presentation of that insidious bastard archetype. And I am so glad that we get to not right the wrongs because Randy is not a wrong character, but that we get to nod to the increasing awareness of what yes. we know Randy is capable of with a character like Charlie. I, I love you. Because <laughs> I, you know, we have a lot, obviously, we have a lot of crossover in our thoughts on films. Um, and I, I constantly learn from you, friend, and I really appreciate the things, the insight that you bring to it. Because I think that at, in the moment, a lot of the criticism for these characters is that they were rehashing characters from before. And it was I like, think we that were, is such a missed view. We were trying to just like new generation. it. Like you got to think in the odds, we had the new Melrose place. We had, mm-hmm. was it Melrose place? Yeah. And then like, kind of like the new kind of like, yeah, this, okay, here's the one for one. I mean, of, we were rebooting 90210 with the original cast it in it. Like, and Sinead Grimes is in this movie. So we have a different, like, and I think that's very much what people went in expecting. We saw these three teens in the car at the beginning. We're like, oh, I guess this is the new Woodsboro. Yeah. And, and so what we kind of were blind to, I think, culturally, mm-hmm. was that these were actually really great updates and satirizations of these character types, letting us know exactly who they'd be now. But all we could focus on was like, why is Sidney Prescott wearing that ugly blue cardigan? <laughs> I mean, guys, it was ugly, right? But okay, but as, as somebody who like loves hero wear, yeah. Think about like what Sydney's wearing when she's like not in my movie at the first one. Yeah. She's got her blue denim jacket. Yeah. And what does she have in this? That same color, but as a cardigan. Green <laughs> Four is giving us Sydney, but older. She still loves to be draped in blue. She's out of darkness, Sam. She's, she's out, out of darkness. darkness. I and also what a talented friend group that both her <laughs> and Gail Weathers are both like best-selling authors. 
Oh yeah. And they're both gonna, they're both gonna have their, their like Sydney's book will be adapted into a film. I'm honest, they better, I was they better that. in number five they have better. an out of darkness adaptation that people bring up like, oh, I saw your movie out of dark. That better come up somehow. I think that when thinking about what hits and misses specifically with that and tying it into my location right now, mm -hmm. um, <laughs> yeah. we have all of these teens at a party and they, one of them has like a camera on his head and he's broadcasting everything. Yeah. I think that's where it kind of jumps the shark. Like that's mm -hmm. the moment where, it, where it's not reading as authentic to people because teens aren't doing that yet. Now, sure. we weren't, uh, we didn't. The next these private, early adopter teens might have been. They might have been. They might. I, they are the most likely ones to have been. I I agree that I believe that the kids in this movie did. <laughs> I just, <laughs> but they present it as if, as if this is what kids everywhere were sure. doing. That was the spirit of what was happening. Yeah. Totally fine with that. Mm -hmm. What Because what ended up happening was all of our phones ended up with cameras. So, you know, yeah. we, we ultimately did do exactly that. Now, at this party though, and they're streaming it and there's this togetherness and they're all like rooting for the movie and yeah. kind of like movie nighting it, which I love. They're all commenting while it happens. Like, I love the community and the gathering of these kids in this barn. It's so fucking fun. I want an actual real life Sabathon where we can I do know, it. yeah. Not just you and me in saying, I'll send you a copy together of the new <laughs> But I want I want a group gathering and celebration and like uh, uh what's the word when you like interaction interaction uh, yes participation God, we don't actually have screenings like that well and, and you we know we are absolutely you know to be thirsty for that more than ever during uh, the halo of lockdown life yeah um, fair and so, I yes oh I was just gonna say so when I think this movie peaks in the inauthenticity meter for folks during mm -hmm. the barn scene where we have both the combination of the kids doing that. And then we have Gail Weathers, uh, Scooby doing her way through <laughs> Scooby with doing, her like absolutely. purse acting like an old, like they, they're really playing up the old lady part. So, okay. If I was going to have like a cringe meter, okay. Mm -hmm. Like my most cringe in scream four would be that. And yet, and yet I love it. <laughs> I love it. Well, Give, and, me more. And the, Give me more. And this is odd. It, it's in the way that we don't, track Sydney for a large portion of screen three. Yeah, where the, is she? The barn is where we really lose Gail for yes. most of four because you she gets attacked. Right. So she has to go to the hospital, but the hospital is going to be the site of our, cause we have our, obviously there's the showdown in, you know, the house between Jill and Sydney, Charlie, he's a pawn, fuck him. He's the Mickey. Like he's gonna, he's gonna eat it. And, but the, the face-to-face -face between Jill and Sydney, you know, when we get, when we get Sydney, you're like, what about your friends? And she's like, your friends? Like, what do you, what do you, are you listening to yourself? Like, what world are you living in? I don't need friends. I need fans. That to me, like, we talked about this after the Screamathon at the New Beverly with the way that three, I think we could comfortably say is the most reviled of, of all of them. Yeah. I think definitely. it has the, it has the fewest, um, people who are willing to do the legwork on it. Um, and yet it has perhaps the fan favorite supporting character of the entire franchise in Parker Posey's Jennifer Jolie. Yes. And the fact that you can go into number four and you can have, even with it having its detractors at the time, the movie did quickly engender 
for a couple new supporting characters, a lot of love for the performances in that movie, you get more franchise MVPs in number four with new additions in Kirby and in Jill. And if you can put people that fans want to see in every installment of a franchise and be like, no, these people have to come back. Like these people are linchpins to introduce something new and something so established and have people hunger for that to be a continuing element of it. I think that is such a study study testament to the strength of character in the screen franchises because no matter how much they falter you get people like me who will continue to come back for the characters because they know the characters under the stewardship of of kevin and wes kevin in some version and in some level of of involvement with the film are going to work and are going to come through and that we get in that showdown between jill and Sydney, the I don't need friends, I need fans, you get one of the signature lines of the entire franchise that resonates so much. Like at the time, it was a great line delivery and it was hilarious and perfect. And now it's like a resonant and bone chilling line delivery. Like yeah. that is to me the testament of great art. And that whole interaction sets up our return to the hospital where, where Gail and Sydney, as they so often have, will come together in the final showdown to vanquish the true foe. So say what you will about act two, right? Say what <laughs> yeah. you will about the sabaton. Put feedback on it. Listen, Alison Brie in that uh, in that parking lot, why did she die that way? Why didn't she just, <laughs> I mean, like, it's like, is it believable Brie, that she just didn't get out it, of there? Not really. It is 100% worth it just for Alison Brie saying, fuck me well. That uh, is okay. Alison Brie's entire performance hangs on that one line for me. Anything fuck else me is well. allowed because of, Fuck me well. Fuck me well is like her trying <laughs> to use scissors to cut her spanks and how uh, how to be single. Like Alison Brie <laughs> just always has one movement, move one moment in every movie. But anyways, so as yeah. much as as much as so throw away Act Two and some of the things that are whatever. When we get to the hospital, when we get here for Black Christmas 2.0, <laughs> yes. or I guess like 4.0. I don't know how many. 4.0. Uh, you know, 4.0. Like, but like we in the aughts in 2006 we get black christmas which ends at a hospital and there's kind of this showdown and like these surprises and twists and i remember watching this being like oh no (laughs) but yet when you talk about this movie even at the time whether this conversation is happening in 2011 or it's happening in 2021 Mm -hmm. at its 10-year anniversary Mm -hmm. we all can acknowledge it is a tight well-done ending that hospital sequence is pretty much flawless it's so good. Start to finish, it's good. And I mean, so- and that uh, that fight scene fucking kills. That fight scene is brutal. When you have Jill and Sydney beating the shit out of each other with like bedpans, and she's like kicking Sydney in the stitches, like that is some hard hitting cinema right there. It reminds me of the Friday the Thirteenth showdown between <laughs> yeah. um, the final girl and uh, and Betsy Palmer because like they really like beat the shit out of each other yeah. IRL. Yeah, that like, feels like, oh God, did you guys walk out of there okay? Watching this, it's like, hey, should we call a first AD? Like, <laughs> yeah. is ever, are they being monitored correctly? Like it, it really is like a, it's an intense and well choreographed scene in the, in the hands of the great Wes Craven, which is why combining action with the suspense, with the self-aware moments, like yep. when, they take down Jill when Sydney together with Sydney and Gail, it takes both of them because Mm -hmm. Wes knows that the heart of the film is teamwork. That's why we're here. It is our chosen family working together to vanquish a killer. And and that the final girl need not persevere on her own. And that Sydney and Gail are the dark and light half of a, of a whole entity. 
what I want to give this movie credit for is that it does feel like a finished ending when Sydney's lying in a pool of her own blood in the scene right before the hospital. When mm -hmm. it's like Sydney's been taken down, Emma has faked everything to make it look like she's the sole survivor. She is the final girl who's rising from the ashes and she is going to have the acclaim. When we get to the hospital, it's like, oh, this is still going. This is still going. That's what the fuck could what's happen? so brilliant about the ending. And so when Sydney and Gail are there and they're about to clear. Clear, clear. <laughs> With those heart pump things. They defibrillate yes. chill to death. It is an incredible moment that Sydney still takes the time to give a one-liner right before she uh, before she takes Jill down. Yep. You forgot the first rule of remakes, Jill. Don't fuck with the original. Don't fuck with the original. Don't fuck with the original. Wait, but was wasn't that Gail that said that one? Sydney no. said clear. Oh, she said both. You forgot yeah, the number one rule. Yeah, it's after Jill has gone down to the ground. Oh, and she okay. Is like... And that's the ultimate rule. And I <laughs> hope that the gentleman behind Scream Five, yes, know they that that's the rule. <laughs> I also i I treasure so much that Wes Craven, truly of of all of that like four horsemen of the apocalypse that arose in the seventies and eighties to change the landscape of horror. I think he's, uh, to me, he's the most impactful. Nobody respected a heroine like Wes Craven. Yes. From Heather Langenkamp being like the first offensively minded final girl, like a fucking fighter and a problem solver from the outset who will not be distracted or deterred by like any frivolities in her life, all the way through Lisa Ricer in Red Eye. To I was just going to bring up Red Eye. Yep. To Sydney Prescott, to in this final moment in four, that room ends with like Dewey somewhere. But in this this moment, it's Gail and Sydney again versus a female villain for the you know for the wonderful second incarnation of the perfect female villains of the Scream universe. Yeah. Shouts out Debbie Salt, and it even gives a moment to Deputy Judy, who stands up from the, her presumed death with Gail going, "Hicks, you're alive." Wear the vest, save your chest. And then she collapses, collapses to the ground. We have our like four surviving heroines, all three surviving heroines, all sharing the moment together. And that feels like the, the perfect, most beautiful kind of egalitarian idea that, that Wes Craven only really among his peers would prioritize throughout his entire career. If we're connecting it to Cabin in the Woods, this is the big difference. Um, Cabin in the Woods all whittles down to the trope of the final girl. And that's like the whole thing is like that one moment. And, yeah. And, uh, and, and, and if you were to boil down horror and Cabin in the Woods understanding of it, that's what it would be. When Scream is saying, we understand that Emma Roberts was wrong. It's yeah. not about the sole survivor. It's about the team that took them down. It's yeah. about the family that returns to the franchise. And Scream is the only franchise where it happens every single entry of the movie. Yep. You get a team of characters who survived and they're back. And that's what makes it so special. so special. And that's why in actuality, this ending is the perfect ending. And to me is a superior commentary on that era. Well, and too, you get the final shot of the film where we would normally get a news reporter telling us about like what Sydney survived again. This news report is they're yes. unaware of what's happened on the inside of the hospital. So they're still talking about the brave survivor, Jill Prescott. I love it. Who it's was like, the the only survivor of the Woodsboro massacre? And we don't know. Like maybe we'll find out in five. 
we don't know if the record was ever corrected. We don't know if anybody ever found out the truth, but knowing what we know about people and like the true crime industrial complex, you know, Jill's going to have plenty of fucking fans. She's going to be more famous in death than she ever would have been in life. And there's going to be the wrong kind of fame that pops up around her legacy. How many, how many killers manifestos have we seen over the years and tragedy after tragedy? Like this is a society that will lionize Jill yeah. In false heroism, or it will, if it finds out the truth about her, make her a martyr for a for a glorious cause. Either way, that she's immortalized. Fucking, yep. Either way. And that is an incredibly smart. Yeah. And I couldn't have appreciated it at the time as much. Like I just like, oh, okay. But now I look at that and I'm like, wow, that is an incredibly wonderfully bleak open door to yeah. leave at the end of a scream movie. It's a pretty bittersweet ending because we do get that teamwork and that feeling of like chosen family and that togetherness. And then it's juxtaposed with the immediate following scene where they're reporting on Jill falsely outside. And you realize Jill was absolutely right about how to manipulate the system. Absolutely. And that, and how to make herself famous. Mm-hmm. And because that's her main goal, actually Jill achieved her goal. And so did Sydney. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Like all of our women get what they wanted in the end, except yeah. for a lot of people around them dying. But it's really, you know, for your, for your money, like, this movie is so uh, almost in terms of where it could have landed in sort of the queer horror index of the 21st century. And I think a way that it, it, it could have, I think it could have been more appreciated upon reception. Like when do we see that kick over? When do, when is it, is it 2014? Is it the Lyle Zebra Logan year? Like when for you is the kickover for well, when a- Scream was, was too, too, not, not quite on time, too ahead for I mean, that's why I was thinking about things in terms of Scream being like a closing chapter in this book. Yeah. Because this is the point where, not this book, but this 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 way of thinking about yeah, queer horror. Yeah, the Ots way of thinking. So queer horror goes all the way up to Scream 4, and then it pivots to TV. Mm-hmm. And it does that for a few years. Because it's all of, if you think about all of the franchises that hit TV that were based on other properties, whether that was Bates Motel, uh, Cannibal, mm-hmm. we, we were constantly getting queer versions. Yeah of horror that we knew to be like traditionally heterosexual but kind of queer coded right yeah even in horror tv like the following uh penny dreadful things where there was original content again we were we were having queer characters emerging in a very big way Mm -hmm. so this is where in queer horror in the queer horror landscape the baton kind of gets passed to television Mm. now yes and and ryan murphy is grabbing it and going and while we have Deborah Logan, which is such a, I love that you brought that up because it is so important. You have to think about films that happened around the same time, like Lyle, things that didn't make a splash at the time mm-hmm. and then have a five-year retrospective. That's mm-hmm. that, that later we look back and we're like, hey, there were these pioneering films yeah. that did have queer leads, queer like a queer final girl in Deborah Logan, that we do see these things happening and they're breaking through, but it's not really until culturally we make that joke about the Babadook and it becomes yeah. a takes off that people yep. are really looking at queer horror as a thing yep. and you can see that after that in that moment in combination with get out we get all of the queer podcasts that come next mm-hmm. queer horror in this form in the form that we see in scream 4 that queer sensibility i think ends with this movie mm-hmm, mm-hmm. and then it changes it transforms into what we see in television which ultimately leads to the better representation we're beginning to see today because we demanded it and to, and to like use just the most obvious metaphor, it, it kind of with horror story, with obviously True Blood laying some great groundwork before it, but with horror story and 
ad sponsored television and being a more accessible network and the fact that it's still running 10 years on and now has multiple incarnate yeah, multiple, multiple iterations versions of, what it is. of oh God, American yeah. Horror Story is kind of queer horror comes out of the closet. I I couldn't agree more. I, I American Horror Story with what we see today and and again that cultural impact the way that people want to discuss what the possible things are every year like there are there are super fans who are figuring mm -hmm. out what the themes are and then we get American Horror Story the anthology which is like mm -hmm. breaking new ground however you feel about it or double feature which is this year is going to have like two different versions of American Horror mm -hmm. shorn two into the season mm -hmm. sure yeah like we have uh, American Horror Story uh has only grown mm -hmm. and and is now after 10 years really is here it's 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 a part of horror culture yeah it's like it's like twilight zone like it's it's a thing that's on that is just like this recurrent part a, a defining a genre defining sort of tentpole thing that's just like a part of our vernacular it's just a part of our sort of routine whether either in consumption or just conversation even if you're not watching it you're aware of it and you converse about it and i think and, that and and with and because of that because of the mainstreaming and you know we can take the time to look back at the decade of the the critiques of the Ryan Murphy verse and its trafficking and stereotypes and the things that feels like it it has gotten wrong while at the same yeah. time doing so much good to proliferate the presence of of queer stories and queer characters on television to the point where you can have freaky in 2020 and you can have Misha Osherovich playing a queer character in, yeah. and 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 a, a quintessential part of sort of the that movie's you know adorable Scooby gang the, the teens at the front of that and then you have Fear Street in oh 2020 2021 yes. that won't spoil it for you if you haven't gotten to it yet but lesbian leads at the front of a yes. horror franchise that are given a chance to survive it a fighting chance to survive it and their their love is like neither otherized nor made into a perversion in the way that we traditionally have seen it like and going out to all of Netflix's hundreds of millions of subscribers, yes. like pushing to the point where we've never seen a studio sponsored gay character, gay characters get yeah. the play that we saw in something like that. And then a movie like bit a trans feminine vampire story like and those are just three examples in movies yeah. of the ever growing landscape of queer offerings in horror with the girl in the woods coming out girl in the woods is right around the corner yeah right around the corner from from casey moderno queer authorship we have yep. we have trans authorship we have non-binary and queer actors and characters mm -hmm. this is a it's a big win and when you think about it in terms of 10 years mm -hmm. again to remind it feels like when we talk about it it feels like we're we're spanning decades because think about the because timeline at any point of the, the timeline conversation prior, we would be talking about decades we'd be talking about when I talked about the 30s and we skipped to the 70s, think about that. That's 40 years before we saw that kind of change. We're looking at a 10 year time jump. I mean, which we what see on Pretty Little Liars all the time. Yeah. But no, we, we have, we're looking at a 10 year time jump mm -hmm. and so much has happened so quickly. Even yeah. in the last year or two, everything has changed. Um, every minute that passes, we get closer to um, the kind of existence almost that I think uh, maybe Scream 4 was trying to reference, which was fantasy then, mm -hmm. but who knows, maybe that will be true soon. Wouldn't yeah. that be awesome? I want to live in that world. Mm -hmm. I think that I think that is our perfect closing note to, to go out on the idea of like, you know, the fantasy of queer, uh, queer authored horror past I, being the possibility yeah. of, if not our right now, our seemingly immediate future. Listen, if Scream 4 can predict, I don't need friends, I need fans, 
hey, maybe it predicts uh, you practically have to be gay to survive a horror movie. Yeah. <laughs> that, uh, that's the future I want to live in. And Nostradamus of the series is Scream 4. Yeah, this is, this is prophetic. Night streamers, thank you so much for joining thank you for on this having us Odyssey. Join you. Yeah. On yeah. this audit, what what a what a day it's been. And oh, what a night it's been for me. What a day it's been for you. Yeah. Yeah. It's a it's a beautiful day here in Woodsboro, transitioning into a lovely, into a lovely evening with Sam. Uh thank well, you guys for where oh, can we yeah. find you? Oh, I'm uh, so sorry. I interrupted. No, 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 not at all. Uh, you know, outros are always outros are always ad hoc. I you can find me on Twitter at Jorcru, J-O-R-C-R-U. And where can we find you and and possibly things to watch from you, Sam? You can find me at Sam Wyman on Twitter and Instagram, and you can find my movie The Quiet Room uh somewhere. Uh it's 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 changing hands right now. Uh, but <laughs> I it, but it will be uh available very soon. Okay. Uh, and I is sometime in the future, you will be able to watch my documentary on Shutter, which mm-hmm. is uh, I, I'm directing a docu series about the future of queer horror, or sorry, the history, the expanse, the vast expanse of queer the horror, the vast expanse of queer horror. Mm-hmm. So uh, if you like this episode, you're gonna love that. Yeah, I am. I am a proud producer on that documentary. So I am. Me and Sam are just. We cannot stop bringing you the queer eye for horror content for the no dead guy what, for the dead guy <laughs> for and hopefully not the, and, and no and not the dead gay because hopefully not. Yeah. we're fucking past that yeah we're moving um, on yep happy 10 years to screen bye